And we did this for the prospect. And it was a net estate benefit of additional $3 million to do this tax planning work for him. Three million bucks of additional value to do it this way versus stick with like typical rules of thumb and defer as long as possible approach. Like the idea is you save overall tax in your life, not just defer year to year. So it's substantial to do that kind of withdrawal planning for somebody. It's worth the time to do or have your planner do it for you. Welcome to Your Retirement Planning Simplified with your host, Joseph Curry a CFP professional who is going to help you learn how to simplify your retirement planning. This podcast is all about helping you answer those burning questions you've had about your retirement possibilities and making a plan to get there. Through retirement planning education, resources, and expert interviews, Joe will help you get clear on your retirement vision, how to simplify it, and what you'll need specifically to achieve or maintain your financial freedom. Ready to live out your retirement dreams and create future opportunities for the ones you love? Then let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 37 of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. I am your co-host, Joe Curry, and with me, as always, my co-host, Lindsay Wilson. How are you, Lindsay? I'm good, Joe. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Good. What's new with you? Well, I had a great trip to Toronto last weekend, saw some friends, went tobogganing, really great time. So that was quite lovely. How about you? Well, we got the boys out snowboarding for what, who knows, maybe one of the last times of the season, which is fun. So I have Harry on kind of the little leash. This has got a little backpack with the leash attached <laughs> to it, but he's doing pretty great. He almost ready to get past it and Luke can go everywhere now, which is fun. Did some fun snowboard trips this year without the kids, but I'm looking forward to when we can. So we're putting the reps in now. Fantastic. So I'm excited about our topic, our podcast today. It's a little different than our typical podcast. I was actually talking to a couple other advisors in the same retirement planning space here in Canada as well. Uh, Very similar philosophy. It was a lot of fun to chat with them. Specifically, the topic was retirement income planning, which is one of my favorite topics when it comes to retirement planning. So I had a lot of fun with it. Now, this is a little bit different. I guess, Lindsay, you checked the episode out. Yeah. Here we are doing the intro ahead of, but you were actually involved. So I'm just curious, what did you think of the episode and listening to it? It was amazing. I think great minds do think alike. There were a lot of similarities in your approach, particularly you're talking about taking retirement income planning beyond just the safe withdrawal rate. It's beyond that 4% rule, looking at level two, even the way that you emphasize values planning. You spoke a lot about the guardrails as well. So I thought it was really a meeting of the minds. And I think It's a great episode for anybody kind of looking for that good, grounded, and overall retirement information and advice. I think it's a good episode to start with. It was really comprehensive. Yeah, we dove pretty deep. It's a longer episode than normal, but I think there's a lot of good info in there Mm -hmm. for anyone listening. So Riley and Gable are going to put the same episode out on their feed. They also have a podcast, The Awe Inspired and Retired. Listeners on their platform are going to get to hear this as well, which is exciting. So hopefully a lot of people are going to hear this and get this information. So Riley Anderson, he works as a wealth planner and collaborates with clients to create a financial plan that produces and maintains their financial well-being. He has a background in public accounting before moving into financial planning and building financial planning technology. He actually started as a CPA. He has his designation from 2017 and holds a Bachelor of Management degree from the Dillon School of Business at the Lethbridge College. He is applying his industry experience and knowledge in accounting by being a part-time instructor to the students at Lethbridge College as well. Pretty amazing. He's taken his experience and turned it into teaching. Caleb Miller is a founding partner and managing director of Investor DNA. As a leader and a visionary, he spent his time leading and executing the strategic direction of the firm. His oversight of the company includes areas of corporate decisions, including product development, management of company resources, and long-term business partnerships and organizational culture. He is a graduate from the Haskin School of Business at the University of Calgary and holds a Bachelor of Commerce degree. With a passion for helping others and a keen interest in business, Caleb has focused on entrepreneurial endeavors over the last 10 years in areas of construction, real estate, and the financial services industry. I'm pretty excited about what we're going to chat about. Yeah, me as well. I mean, today I think we can dig into, I don't know, the mysteries of financial planning. I'm thinking like 20,000 leagues under the sea. Maybe we pulled out the sea monster and maybe the sea monster's name is Joe. Because <laughs> we've actually found somebody else in Canada that's seen the light, if I can say that. Yeah, it's a fun topic to talk about because 
I feel like so many people haven't kind of taken the next step beyond just retirement projections, which we'll talk about today. But it's nice to be talking to some other like-minded advisors in Canada. Totally. You're like our Ontario counterpart. I'd say like, you're like doing the same thing. You got the Eastern coast on lock or Eastern part of Canada on lock. We got like Central Canada going here. I feel like we just need somebody maybe in Western Canada, maybe in BC or something. And we got the whole, maybe Northern Canada mm. too. We got the whole thing, started mastermind group and we're off to the races. Perfect. <laughs> level movement. Totally. So if you're listening to this episode today, we're hoping this episode validates for you just a little bit more on the power of strategic income planning in retirement. So we're going to get into different retirement income planning approaches, things like guardrails, income tax planning, and maybe some thoughts on guaranteed income in retirement. And today we're going to be collaborating with Joe doing that. And we're all very excited. We're a bunch of like-minded professionals and we're here together to, again, dig into some of those deep mysteries of financial planning. And we feel like we're maybe the one of the few in Canada that we know of anyway, that are focusing on retirement income planning and doing it in innovative ways that perhaps other Canadian retirement planners are not. So maybe with that, what if we just shared a bit about ourselves and maybe how we each got into the industry or into financial planning or financial services in general? Yeah, let's do that. Why don't you start, Caleb? For sure. So for my story, it started back when I was in the University of Calgary at the Haskane School of Business. I had a bunch of money and I didn't know what to do with it exactly. So I ran a landscaping company for a number of years and it was quite successful, like a number of years in university. And basically, I was fortunate enough to have a grandparent that was helping me pay all my tuition expenses. So anything I earned through my business on the side, I kept it. My thought was like, I need to responsibly manage whatever I've earned. And I was always like this, even as a kid. So as a kid, maybe like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, I was a kid that saved up all his allowance money. And I avoided the corner store. I never bought candy or anything. I would put it all in my piggy bank. And I should remember my stepbrother, every week he would go and spend all his money and he'd have nothing left. What I did, I saved my money for like a number of months. And I went and bought a brand new basketball. I was like 12 years old. One of those expensive, I don't know if you remember, it was like that infusion basketball where it had the pump inside the ball. Do you guys remember those? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think I can remember that one. Yeah, it was back in like 2001 or something. But Spalding released this ball where you turn the cap like a quarter turn counterclockwise, and the pump would pop out and you like pump this thing up and then you put the pump back in. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically I saved all my allowance money to buy this thing. And then what I started doing, I started renting it out to like the neighborhood. <laughs> so like, yeah, you can use my ball. It's going to cost you a couple bucks. I did that for a while. My thought is like, I'm going to pay off the cost of this ball. There's going to be more wear and tear, but I'm like, eventually I'm going to get all my money back of what I spent on the ball. And I did that. And that was like my first beginnings of how do I leverage my money? How do I make the most with what I have? And I say that carries forward through university. And when I had that thought in my mind, I'm like, I have to make my money last for the rest of my life. So I enrolled in, it was called the personal financial planning degree program at the University of Calgary. And basically I took that, it had like risk management classes, it had financial planning and finance classes all mixed together. Those are some of the requisites. From there, I graduated, I was 25. And then I started my own practice. And maybe six years later, I started this company, which Riley and I are at today. So that's kind of my story. And it kind of comes all full circle for me. So for me, it was about like how to make my money last. And now we're talking about how to make retirees money last. That's perfect. I love your kind of practicing what you preach. Yeah, it's always been a thing for me. So I'm excited to be here today talking financial planning and retirement planning. Maybe Joe, why don't you tell us a bit about you and how you got started? Sure. So my story, I guess we could go back a little ways as well. Probably at the same time you were buying your basketball <laughs> was maybe a little earlier than that. My dad was in this business or he is in this business, I should say. So around the dot-com crash, I remember him coming home from work one day and I could tell, you know, he was kind of beaming with a little bit of pride and I asked him what's going on. And he said he just got to receive a phone call that day from one of his elderly clients. She was a widow and she had just called him to tell him that he was the reason she could sleep at night despite all the market volatility and everything going on in the world. So that kind of got me more, I guess you could say, excited or thinking about this path of being a financial planner. From there, I did business through university. My dad, before I joined his business, maybe put some work in at some other jobs I didn't so much like. So I'd appreciate maybe the <laughs> more of the white collar job, I guess you could say. So I joined him, went through some different iterations of the type of advice I was doing, you know, starting life insurance sales and then getting more into the investment side with younger families. But then I ended up joining up with another advisor as a succession plan in 2016. And his business was full of retirees because he was getting ready to retire. Most of his clients were around his age. And I really fell in love with the retirement planning side of thing. I think a big part of why I really fell in love with it is because I started digging a lot deeper into some of the stuff we're going to talk about here today. And what I found was there was so much potential advice we could be giving that other advisors just weren't giving or didn't even know about. So I've just kind of continued down that path for the last 
what is that, seven years or so of just going deeper and deeper in the retirement plan. And, and so here we are today. Awesome. Also practicing what you're preaching here. I guess it's been in your family. Retirement planning has been in your blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my dad had more of, I guess that you could call it a general's practice. So he does a lot of group benefits and he did insurance, he did planning and all that kind of stuff. And now he's kind of fractioned off his business, I guess you could say. So he basically just does group benefits now. And so we're not together at all. I have my own business, as I mentioned, succession plan. So I bought that business outright in 2019. So Matthew's an associates. We have a team now just hired an associate advisor this week. She started. So we got a team of four now. And yeah, just totally focused on the retirement planning side of things. Awesome. Very exciting. And Riley, tell us about your story. Sure. I like to run. I like to go on adventures. So because of that, I went to school to become an accountant. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) And six years later, I realized accounting wasn't as interesting as I thought it might be. I made a big change into financial services, which maybe doesn't seem like a big change, but it is. It is a lot more interesting. And that change first started at a software company that was building financial planning software for financial planners. What I learned was like what Joe said, there's a lot of great advice that can be given to retirees. And I've said this in other episodes, but basically if you're a client looking to work with someone as a financial planner or financial advisor, I think it's that time before and after retirement is like the place, the time when you should be working with someone. You get with some rule in the universe that you can only work for an advisor for 10 years. And you could do it when you're 16 or 18 or 25. I think if you're retiring at 65, pick 60 and work with someone from 60 to 70. I think that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck and get some advice that really matters and will make a difference in your life. And so that's what drew me to retirement planning and retirement income planning. And I think what some of the things we'll talk about today. Yeah, didn't William Sharp say uh, decumulation retirement planning is the nastiest, hardest problem in finance? I love that quote. It's been quoted so many <laughs> times, but it is. It, it's so mm. nasty. It's so nasty and hard <laughs> that it makes all of us here want to solve it because it's not as simple as just basically saving and investing for retirement when you're years and years away from it. But there's this transition point that happens, both like financially and non-financially. Even Joe, I know you focus on some of that and you have your own retirement podcast too, which is really exciting. But I think you've interviewed some similar people focusing on the non-financial aspects. But there's also this financial part of it, which we're going to discuss a lot of today is how interesting and complex it is and makes this whole discussion interesting. Yeah, I think a big part of it is there's no perfect solution, but a lot of the solutions that exist in kind of majority in the world don't really answer clients' questions or they only answer it at one point in time. So I think where we can add a lot of value is showing you know systems for decumulation or retirement income that gives clients a little bit of certainty about what's going on. And there's more of a plan that we know when we're going to react, when we can take more, when we can take less, as opposed to just we're 90% to goal right now. But you know, if the markets go down tomorrow, that all changes. I feel like you've hinted at this in the intro, Joe, where you said, I'd like to help people move on from just financial projections. <laughs> You're taking a shot at the financial projecting tools or people out there. What's wrong from your perspective with just having a financial or retirement projection? I think people mistake a financial or a retirement projection as a plan. So essentially what a planner is doing when they're creating that is they're going to build a whole bunch of assumptions in. So you have X amount of assets invested, however they're invested, and we're going to assume a certain rate of return. So we'll call that 5%. We're going to assume 2% inflation for the last couple of decades. But as we know, that's not really holding up so well lately. We're going to assume you're going to live to 90 or 95 or 100 or whatever that number is. We're building in all of these assumptions, but none of them are going to be true. They're all going to have some variance on them. And even if we get the rates of return right, for example, there's not going to be a straight line return. We're not going to get 5% per year every single year or a real return above inflation of 3% or whatever that number is. So basically, I think they're a starting point, but they shouldn't replace a plan. I guess the next step beyond just a retirement projection with those assumptions that I just mentioned is we can maybe build in Monte Carlo simulations. So for anyone listening who doesn't know what that means is we're basically using a set of assumptions like I just mentioned, but then we're running it through a computer system that's going to show a whole bunch of different alternatives. So maybe we're not getting that straight line return. So I guess it's a little bit more helpful. But again, it comes back to maybe 87% chance we're going to be successful. So to a client, what does that mean? Does that mean there's a 13% chance that I'm going to run out of money? Or maybe it's a 13% chance we need to make an adjustment. But how do we know when to make that adjustment? So I think as many answers as a retirement projection gives us, it also creates that many more questions. So that's kind of my thoughts on the projection. I don't know. What do you guys think? So what I heard you saying, Joe, is then the projection is not as good as the plan is because the projection is almost like two degrees static. 
where the plan is there's a dynamic component to it. Almost implicit in what you're saying is plan is there's changes. We can't stick with these assumptions and assume they're even going to be right at all, or there's going to be variance. But if we keep updating those and keep putting it back into the plan, keep revisiting it, then we're getting closer. Yeah. The next step is at least continuing to update the projection. You know, does it still look the same? And you can adjust from there. But it's still not giving us a strategy ahead of time where the client can feel comfortable that they know what's going to happen when markets are bad or what's going to happen when markets are good or, or what is a bad market. So, you know, as a client, you might be thinking over the last year when markets are down and maybe you call your advisor and you say, Mr. or Mrs. Advisor, I know my account's way down. Should I be taking less money out right now? And then maybe the advisor says, no, no, you're okay. And then six months later, things are down more. They call back and Mr. or Mrs. Advisor, should I take out less money and my account's down even more? No, no, you're okay. But how do they know when they're not okay? They want some kind of an answer that tells them, okay, this is when we're going to take action. This is when we need to make changes. And the projection can't tell you that. It's not really, again, it's not a plan. It's just an outlook. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe the analogy I would give, and you may have heard this one before, but if an airplane is taking off to wherever they're trying to get, they're course correcting the whole time. So we might want to take off and go to Hawaii, and we know what direction Hawaii is. But if you just start the plane on that direction and you never make any kind of course corrections, those small adjustments along the way, you'll end up nowhere near Hawaii. And so retirement is kind of like that because returns are different every year than we expect. Inflation is different every year than we expect. So every year we want to know, like, when do we need to make those course corrections just to keep in the right direction? Totally. We agree 100% with the course corrections. Riley, what would you say about the weakness in financial planning software? I'm going to call you the expert, the resident expert here, <laughs> because you were working for a company that was designing the planning software that planners are using. What would you say is the weakness from your perspective? I think Joel really nailed it. And if I had to put it in my own words, it's just that the projections give you a good outlook on where you're heading, but they don't tell you what to do when things get off track or when things are off track. And even opposite of what Joe said, Joe mentioned the scenario like when your accounts are going down, when is down too far down and when should you make changes? The same as on the other side. If the markets are going up and you call your planner and say, you know, we want to spend more or can we spend more? We have this big purchase to make. Should we make that? Your plan should be able to really quickly tell you the outcome of that or if changes need to be made. So I'd invite anyone out there near retirement to ask their planner, like, when do they have to spend less and when can they spend more? Like, that should be an answer that every financial planner has for their clients and should be monitoring that so that their clients stay on track and course corrections are being made. I'd say, first of all, if you're listening today, first of all, like a high five to you if you're even participating at all in the modeling of your retirement planning, projections or otherwise. You're a winner already in my book. So I think that's exciting. But today, yeah, let's dig in further though and like kind of analyze some of the weaknesses like we're doing, but also maybe some of the solutions. And maybe one of the things that are thrown out there is the traditional 4% rule. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Is that a good rule? Not a good rule? I'll jump in and just say it's not a bad rule. <laughs> but what I would say is for most people, it's probably not ideal because most people want to live their best retirement life earlier on in retirement and they want to spend more money. And the 4% rule, again, if we're just kind of giving an overview of what that is, essentially, and I'm going to make this super simple. So if you had a million dollar portfolio, you start your portfolio income. So withdrawals from your portfolio at $40,000. So that's 4% of the portfolio. And then from that $40,000 each year, we're able to keep up with the cost of living. So increasing the $40,000 withdrawal with inflation. So as the research shows, in almost every scenario that we've seen in history, we're going to be okay if you follow that for a 30-year retirement. But the problem is, in 99% of the time, you're going to end up with a lot more money than you started with, more than likely. And you potentially missed out on opportunities to travel or spend money on the grandkids or whatever it is early on in retirement because you had a really conservative beginning to your retirement just to make sure you don't run out of money. So it's not bad. It probably means you won't run out of money, but you know, I think you're maybe leaving something on the table. Yeah, agreed. It's a good rule to like kind of guide you initially, but it can't be your be all end all. I think it was William Bernstein wrote in his book, The Investor's Manifesto, and he's commenting on a number of rules. And he says like at the 2%, your withdrawal rate is like your nest egg is going to survive everything except for like a catastrophic institutional military collapse. It'll fall apart. <laughs> yeah. He's like at 3%, you're probably safe. And he's like at 4%, you're starting to take some real chances here. And he's like at 5% and beyond, you're just going to run out of money. Would you guys disagree or agree with that generally? I guess a lot of it depends on how you set up your portfolio too, right? So I don't think we're going to get too much into investment advice, but well, Morningstar, we just did an episode on this recently. Morningstar recently updated their safe withdrawal rate and 
taking into account history, but also kind of looking at valuations and stocks and where interest rates are, all that kind of stuff. They're putting the safe withdrawal rate. I think they said a 50-50 stocks bonds portfolio at 3.78 now. I think last year they had that as low as 3.2 or 3.3% because valuations were so high. So this is before interest rates started coming back up and before stocks came down, which when you look at that, maybe it didn't do a bad job. <laughs> I'm figuring that out. But so do I agree? I don't know. I feel like the 4% rule is probably still pretty safe for most people, especially if they're willing to make some adjustments when things get really bad. Yeah. I think my biggest issue with like a percent rule, like the 4% rule or the 3.78 or, or whatever, like, <laughs> yeah. is the fact that it's not being adjusted. It doesn't respond to like how real people spend their money. Yeah. I mean, like the truth is that retirees adjust their spending over time. They may spend more when the market does well or spend less when it doesn't do well, cut back. They may spend more in the early part of retirement. You know, you think of like the go-go years or the slow-go or the no-go. They may have this adjusted spending through the course of their retirement or even like something like the retirement spending smile, which we have learned about from David Blanchett, which actually Riley and I, we interviewed. Awesome. And his spending is much different. Yeah, it's early high spending and then it kind of dips down and then higher at the end when healthcare ticks up again. So the problem with the percent rule is that it doesn't factor in like real retiree spending. It kind of like exists in this vacuum of like, there's outside of like actual people in their lives and what they do with their money. So I think that's a major weakness from my perspective on any percent rule. Yeah, it's like another financial projection. We're not saying financial projections are bad, but they're a good start. But that's like level one. We want to get people to like level two, which is a plan and something beyond a percent rule. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what's a level two planning technique that goes beyond the percent rule? Who wants to bring that out? Because I think that we actually all use the same rule or the same technique, but yeah, who wants to talk about that? Yeah, so I guess we're jumping into dynamic spending rules, right? Yeah. So dynamic withdrawal strategies. All three of us, I mean, we used guardrails. So I guess we could start there. Absolutely. I, I can't remember how many years ago now that I adopted this, but it's, it's working out really well. And I'm talking about implementation with clients. And this comes back to that planning piece we were saying, you know, if there's a lack of what the projections. And I will mention, Caleb, you mentioned this too. Anyone who's doing a projection, you are still ahead of the game. It's not a bad thing to be doing that. We're just saying, yeah, we can take it a step further. And that's the whole point of these podcasts is for us to educate our listeners, the audience, so that they know that there's other options available where they can take their planning another step further, or they know what questions to ask the planners are working with. Basically, the guardrails, what they're allowing us to do, and this kind of comes back to the real spending you were talking about, Caleb, is it allows the investor to take more money up front out of the portfolio. So there's, I guess, research on this. There's a range depending on your confidence level, but I use 5%. I don't know what you guys use as a starting amount. So we compare that to the 4% rule. That's really allowing us to take an additional 25% income, right? So we're going from 4% up to 5 So that's extra spending up front. And then what we do is as long as the client's portfolio stays between the guardrails, then we know they can continue to take out that that starting amount that was the 5%. They could keep it up with inflation as long as the returns in the portfolio were positive in the previous year. So one of the adjustments we might make is if last year returns were negative, so this year we wouldn't do an inflation adjustment. And then the guardrails, what's going on there is every portfolio is going to be a little bit different. The percentages are basically if we're taking out 20% more than where we started. So if we're taking out over 6% in my guardrails, we started at five, we're taking out over 6%. Well, now we've hit the lower guardrail because we're taking too much out of the portfolio on an annual basis to feel like we're going to be able to sustain retirement and not run out of money. The flip side of that is we have an upper guardrail. And now if we're taking out less than 4%, so 20% less than where we started, Well, now we know there's enough of a buffer there where we can increase the amount coming out of the portfolio and withdrawals each year. So again, going back to the overall kind of objective here is we're increasing the amount we can spend early on in retirement because we have a plan in place that we know when we need to tighten our belt, so to speak, if things aren't going well. But also we know when we have a buffer to do some additional things that maybe weren't even in the original plans because things are going a lot better than we initially expected. So that's my high level overview of how we're using it. You guys let me know how you would adjust or how you guys do things differently. I love how you're doing it. To summarize what you said, guardrails is a kind of a name that we've given to a dynamic spending rule where there's some rules in place that tell you when to spend more and when to spend less in retirement. And those are essentially the guardrails. It's like your portfolio is, let's say a million dollars, but if it gets to 1.2 million, you should spend more. If it drops down to $900,000, maybe you should spend less. And there's rules in place and you know those before anything happens, if what changes are going to be made. And that's what really makes the projections different than what a guardrails-based plan is. 
we do something very similar in that we move on from the static assumptions of you're going to live this long, you're going to get this rate of return, and your spending is going to be constant throughout retirement. And we go into something more realistic. It's like your spending is probably going to go bigger or more earlier than it is later. And your rate of returns are going to be fluctuating. And you and your spouse probably aren't going to both die at age 95 and December 31st. And because of that, the timing of when your pensions end is going to be different. So all these things factor in and we can give someone a real solid answer about how much they should spend right now and when they need to change that amount. What I love about it most is it helps do best what I think retirees want most, which is not run out of money. (laughs) And the 4% rule is pretty good at that. But the next best thing is it helps you not die with too much money. It actually helps you spend the money you saved to spend in the first place. Are you finding that helps clients do that as well, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. Who I find this works the best for or the people who get the most value out of it is when I'm working with a couple, it's the spouse who's usually not as involved in the conversations. So before guardrails, they didn't really get too involved. I'd really have to pull them in. And when I started introducing the guardrails and having that visual with the guardrails and Riley, you made a good point. Like I don't talk in percentages when I'm talking to the clients. I show them when your portfolio drops below this amount, that's the lower guardrail. If you hit this upper amount, that's the upper guardrail. You can take more money. But when showing that visual and explaining everything we just went through, the spouse is not as engaged. They really started kind of jumping into me. Joe, this is like the first time I've actually understood how much money I could spend, when I need to make an adjustment. It's so much more clear to me now. So the response that I have received from clients has been great. And like I say, especially from the clients who were maybe not as sophisticated when it comes to investment and planning. And when not to make an adjustment. Like it tells you when to make one and when not to make one. And I think the guardrails is just as good for that is, as we know, investing is full of all sorts of emotions. And often the default is to want to change something when it feels like things are changing in the market or the political spectrum or in the economy. If that's all changing, maybe we should change something. But a lot of the time, not changing anything is better. And the guardrails makes it really clear if that's the case. Yeah, exactly. And I'm stealing this from another podcast. I can't remember who said it, but I guess there's a stat. So for penalty kicks in soccer, if the goalie just stood... Caleb just lit up. He's like, hmm, soccer? (laughs) (laughs) If the goalie just stood in the middle of the net, penalty kicks, and didn't try to guess jumping one way or the other, they would actually stop the ball more than the way they do it where they guess. But it doesn't feel good if you're the goalie standing there and you're just watching balls potentially go by you. (laughs) No one ever does that, but... Apparently, that's what the stats actually show. So it's kind of the same thing with investing. Sometimes, like you said, the best action is actually no action, especially if you set up your portfolio and everything, your withdrawals, everything based on your goals and your situation properly in the first place, then there shouldn't really be a lot of adjustments. But at least with the guardrails, you know when those adjustments need to happen. And as a retiree who's adopted guardrails, you do have to have the ability, though, to accept some volatility in your spending from year to year. Not that there's going to be these drastic, frequent changes. We don't know exactly what markets are going to do. That's some of the unknown. But we do need to have the propensity to make a change and be okay with that. But if you are able to make that change, it increases your ability that you're not going to run out of money. And that's how you can start with like a higher withdrawal rate of kind of what you're saying, Joe. Same thing for us. Like That's how you can spend early more in retirement because you can accept some volatility in spending, which are portfolio withdrawals down the road. And by being able to do that, all of a sudden you open yourself up to receiving more income. You don't have to take the default approach, which is, I'm just not going to spend from my portfolio because I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know what market's going to do. I don't know inflation's going to be, blah, blah, blah. You don't have to do that default approach of not spending down your portfolio because you actually have a system that kind of overlays your portfolio. It's like some confidence now. It's a calculated approach of how you spend your money, not just keep it all aside and hope it lasts as long as it does. There's actually some math involved and there's some Monte Carlo analysis going on and some work that you're doing with your financial planner to make adjustments as time goes on. I like it for that approach. I think it's beautiful. And I was even preparing for this episode today. I read a paper real quick. It was a nice, good read. I don't know if you read this one, Joe, or not, but it, David Blanchett released this, published in December 2022. So just a couple months back. It's called Redefining the Optimal Retirement Income Strategy. And basically, he goes through all the different strategies. He really gets into detail about like dynamic spending. And he talks about like what's good about it, what's bad about it. And he says it's not a revolutionary paper in the sense that anything's new. He's like, all this stuff, all this research is like decades old, even like down to guardrails. Guyton Klinger, I think, started this in, began in what, in the 90s? Yeah, I think it was the 90s. Yeah. Like a long time ago, right? So it's not new, but it's evolutionary is what he said. 
and he kind of put a bunch of concepts together. And by the end, he says something really interesting. Read my note here. So he said that dynamic withdrawal rules have been introduced in past research. He's like, but what they haven't been is like, they haven't been implemented in any financial planning tools today. And he's like, that's the weakness right now. It's like, it's hard to come by. Now, so David is an American and we know in the US, like they're way more progressive and they're forward thinking than us, even in Canada, right? So that's even magnified more for us Canadians. Like we have even less tool designed for us in the financial planning space where we can utilize this stuff. So I'd say never fear though. I mean, Investor DNA and Matthews and Associates, we're both on the ball here. We're using this stuff that I'd venture to say very few Canadians are maybe even getting right now. Maybe no one else is. I don't know if I dare to say that, but it's much more rare. So that's one great reason why we're excited to chat with you today, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about dynamic withdrawal strategies. So guardrails aren't the only one. Maybe not perfect for everyone. What I found is for almost all my clients, they like it. They make sense to them. They're behind it. We've gotten just went through a difficult period with the guardrails and they're still all on board and they still get it. So it's all great. But another one for someone who maybe is a lot more conservative and maybe they would typically go to the 4% rule, something along those lines. They could look at like ratcheting. So Michael Kitts has spoke about this a lot. And so ratcheting is maybe you're just starting somewhere near the safe withdrawal rate. But then if your portfolio grows, and I think the kind of the rule they use is by 50%. So if you have a million dollar portfolio, you're only taking it to 4% or maybe you're even more conservative. And this could also work for someone who has a lot larger portfolio and they want to prioritize maybe charity and the inheritance to their kids, that kind of stuff. And they want to make sure there's something there and they don't necessarily need to spend everything that they could spend with the guardrails. So they started with three or 4% or whatever that number is. And then if it was a million dollar portfolio and it hits a million and a half, so 50% larger, well, then that's when they bump up their spending and then they set their kind of the ratchet there. And again, if they hit 50% above that, they would then bump up their spending again. So it's just a way to ensure there's going to be a legacy. And it's, again, most likely for someone who wants to prioritize an inheritance or charity, and they also don't need to spend everything that they could spend if they were using the guardrail strategy. Yeah, there's a lot of variations. Sounds similar to in David's paper, he's talking about like the floor and ceiling approach. Maybe similar is that you have like almost like guardrails, but it's not dynamic spending. It's just going off of the initial withdrawal rate. And then you have this floor and ceiling. It hits a certain point, you cap it, hits a certain point, and the lower you cap it. And it's kind of making more like safety around Bengen's like 4% rule that he started long ago, right? So yeah, there's different variations of it. And how you said earlier, Joe, like there's no one size fits all necessarily, but there is like a level two version of like financial planning that moves beyond the projections and is more responsive to actual real life spending for retirees. Absolutely. Which is exciting. I'm often saying that if you're in retirement or if you're a few years from retirement, there's a few things that you should know, or you're at least your financial planner should know, which is how much are you going to withdraw when you retire? Or if you already are retired, how much are you going to withdraw this year or next year? And the second thing would be, at what point do I withdraw more or less than that amount? And so the guardrails plan really answers both those questions. But the third thing is, where do I take that amount from? Like I have all these different accounts, RSPs, TFSAs, non-registered accounts. I'm getting some government benefits, maybe pension. I know how much I need to take. Now, like, where do I take it from? Can you maybe start us where you start thinking about that, Joe? That third question? I think for us, that's what always comes next. It's like, how much do I take and (laughs) where does it come from? Maybe you think about it in a different order or a different way, but that's how I think about it. So the only thing I maybe add is I would add one step in the middle there, which is what if I need a lump sum? What if I'm going to buy a new Tesla or whatever it is? Just going back to the guardrails, again, the way we'd use that is if I take out this lump sum, is it going to drop me below my lower guardrail? So it clearly answers the question for the client, like what happens if I take this lump sum? Does it affect my income? And so in a lot of cases, they still stay within the guardrails. But maybe they just need to know that if there's a market correction, like they're that much closer to the guardrails, they need to be ready to dial back the income a bit. But jumping to where are we taking the income from? This is where, you know, it's going to be very specific to each client. It's going to depend on what other benefits they have coming in aside from their their withdrawal. So pensions, government benefits, if we can call government benefits, benefits. So really what we're trying to do, I have a really big push on, and I, I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but of making sure that when I'm talking to new people, they're not taking CPP and OAS before they talk to me and we at least get a good plan in place. Because a lot of times what I've seen, and this is somewhere where I have been able to use some of the planning software to demonstrate the value of deferring some of those government benefits is allowing us to get money at registered accounts before old age security kicks in and CPP kicks in. Because as soon as we have CPP and OAS coming in, that's just another taxable income source. So it's pushing 
our taxable income out. So if we're taking money out of our RSPs or risks, then again, we're paying more tax. So what happens is we try to limit the amount of money or clients don't want to take too much money out of those accounts because they don't want to pay too much tax. And then we end up with the issue, especially for our well-off clients, where we just have a whole bunch of money left in registered investments when they pass away, where half of it's going to CRA. So by delaying the CPP and the OAS, prioritizing taking income, usually up to that older security threshold. Again, this is all going to depend on every client, but keeping the taxable income below the old age security clawback, because that also works out to another tax bracket, right? There's a tax bracket there as well. So whether we're taking OAS or not, that's kind of a, a level we're usually looking at. If we're taking that income out between 60 and 70 when someone's retired, once they get to the point where they have to take their CPP and OAS, and then they have a RIF minimum kicking in, that RIF minimum is usually significantly lower. And then it allows the clients to potentially keep more or all of their old age security as a kind of one benefit. But again, the big thing is really what we're trying to do is level out their taxes over time rather than minimizing taxes as much as absolutely possible year over year. Because it just means that we're going to be taking way bigger tax hits later on. And the results are more lifetime taxes. And also, what they see going back to the CPP and OAS, it also means less guaranteed lifetime income. Because there's a pretty big jump in the amount of lifetime, like guaranteed income people are getting when they delay those benefits. And what I do find, even though most people say, well, I got to take my government benefits. I've been paying the government all my life. I just want to get my money back. But the reality is most people aren't going to run out of money in their 70s or their early 80s. That's not where they're going to run into issues in retirement. It's if they live to 100 or beyond. So if we can maximize those guaranteed sources of income, which also keep up with inflation, that's just going to help anyone who ends up living longer than they expected. So I know I've talked about a few different things there, but I mean, I'll throw it back to you guys. Yeah, we have been doing the same, Joe. I'm thinking to an example just recently with the prospect where they had this like projected estate value of like $12.5 million if they use the typical rules of thumb, which is what you're mentioning is a lot of advisors do. And accountants probably recommend also, which is like, let's take from our taxable accounts first until they're exhausted. Then let's go to like our tax deferred accounts until they're exhausted. Let's move to like our tax exempt accounts until those are exhausted. And that could look like something like maybe non-registered accounts first, then maybe your corporate, your TFSA, and then your RSP at the end. And basically, the goal is to defer tax as long as possible. And that's often the accountant's approach. It's often an industry standard approach from advisors. But we compared that versus if let's intelligently withdraw, just as you said, Joe, let's intelligently withdraw and look at the timing of all these withdrawals strategically. And let's optimize things for your marginal tax bracket. Let's reduce your clawbacks on your old age security. Let's avoid stuff like registered money just pulling up in your RIFs or something like that's going to cause a necessary tax later on in life. Things like this to basically systematically withdraw the plan down. And we did this for the prospect. And it was a net estate benefit of additional $3 million to do this tax planning work for him. $3 million bucks of additional value to do it this way versus stick with like typical rules of thumb and defer as long as possible approach. Like The idea is you save overall tax in your life, not just defer year to year. So if you visit a strategy like this every year for the rest of your life, I mean, that's a fairly large estate, right? Not everyone has a project a state value of $12.5 million. But to him, that was worth $3 million of value to do that work. So I mean, like it's substantial to do that kind of withdrawal planning for somebody. And Riley and I, we didn't expect it to be that high. But certainly when you start doing that work, and there's some assumptions at play, of course, but if you stick on that, then yeah, it's worth the time to do, certainly, or have your planner do it for you. Yeah, for sure. And I would say that it's even more important for someone who isn't necessarily going to like be trying to spend every dollar they have. The more money that could potentially be left over, the more impactful that planning is going to be. So the same example you're just looking at, we looked at it for prospect, a million and a half dollars and the benefit to them was going to be, again, apples to apples, what they were doing versus making those strategic withdrawals was going to be over a million dollars. And that's on a million and a half dollar portfolio. <laughs> I mean, that's huge. And that's because, you know, with the guardrails, if they could take 5% out with their goals, they only needed to take, say, 3% of the portfolio out. So because so much of that money that would just be continuing to grow in those tax-deferred accounts eventually go to tax, and they wouldn't be getting the same benefit from the OAS and CPP, like, it makes a huge impact. A lot of people won't be aware of this because it's like you retire and you get thrown into this new game. It's like now your employer isn't paying you and you get to come up with your own income and you have all these different buckets. We've mentioned all of them, the different government benefits and investment account types. And it's up to you to pick how you want to get paid. You can pay yourself from this one or this one or that one. 
you can start your government benefits at this time or that time. But I think everyone knows the goal, which is have as much spending as possible, squeeze as much money out of all those buckets as possible, and pay the least amount of taxes. If you're really strategic about it, as Caleb and Joe just shared, you can get a lot more money squeezed out of all those accounts and all those income streams. How much of that money goes towards guaranteed income? Maybe not enough. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Riley, I know like you've done some work with like government benefit timing and I know you're in favor of delaying, not for everybody, but like overall, like it's worth doing the analysis, but you like the idea of maximizing that guaranteed income to fit the person. But what's your guys' thoughts on guaranteed income in general? Good? Not good? When we say guaranteed income, we're talking about like what sources of income does someone have that are going to pay for the rest of their life? Maybe not 100% guaranteed, but a lot more guaranteed than their investment portfolio. Is that right? Yeah. I don't think I'm unique in this perspective, but I think that generally more people probably need more of it. Typically, the only guaranteed income source someone has is their government benefits. Maybe the defined benefit pension plan from their employer in some situations. But if it's just their government benefits, they should probably max out on that. And the way to do that is to delay them. And that's probably the most affordable, secure way to get more guaranteed income as part of your total income. Totally. Yeah, I think like guaranteed income is kind of like zinc. You know, like you need a little bit in your diet. So like if you were to talk to your dietitian or somebody who specializes in nutrition or something, like they'd tell you the same thing. Like you need some zinc and it's measured in milligrams. But if you take a whole spoonful of that thing, you're dead. <laughs> but if you take a little bit over months and months and months, you know, that's what you need in your diet to be healthy, right? So the question is though, how much is too much or how much is too little? Not so much should I have it? I believe you should have it. But like how much should you have is is the different question. Joe, have you put any thought or any work into like how much guaranteed income somebody should have or how do you think through that process? I would say that it's going to come in a lot of cases down to the situation, but I don't like to say real thumb too much, but generally speaking, most people are going to be better off to delay. But there are scenarios where you're not going to get the max benefit by delaying your CPP because you retired when you were 55 and you don't have enough years, you can kind of throw it out of the calculation, right? So that might make sense to take it early. You know, where you have the, aside from delaying your government benefits, where you have the biggest impact on maybe reducing that is if you have a chance to commute your pension. And for most people, it's probably not the best way to go. But maybe if you have a family of two government workers and they haven't really saved much up, but they both have 30 years plus service with the federal government or something like that, for them, maybe it makes sense to actually reduce that guaranteed income and maybe commute one of those pensions if they can so that they have some flexibility in their retirement spending. There's something for the kids if that's important to them. But knowing they still have that guaranteed paycheck coming in, both from government benefits and a defined benefit pension. But it's pretty rare to see two people with really good defined benefit pensions. So kind of back to what you guys were saying earlier, well, for most people, it's really just going to be the CPP and the OAS. And most people want to get the most they can out of that benefit because we have no idea how long we're going to live. And life expectancy, I think, is going to be creeping up a lot quicker than what people expect just with artificial intelligence and everything going on and medical advancements. Like we shouldn't just plan on being dead at 90. Maybe some of us will, but the reality is a lot of us won't be. I find it intriguing, this idea asset or liability mapping, where you kind of match your product to what the need is. So like, if you think like wants and needs, so there's a certain degree of like elasticity you have in your wants, flexible spending in your wants that you don't have with your needs. Like what I spend on healthcare as a retiree, I need to spend that probably to keep myself alive or to keep my quality of life. There's not maybe as much flexibility, but something like, I don't know, like buying a new car or brand new, like high-end car every couple of years, like I got some elasticity there. I don't need to necessarily make that purchase every year. So I kind of like the idea of like matching your want to the product type or the needs to the product type. So I think something like the guaranteed income, I think it's a kind of a very cool concept of if you could have your needs or a good portion of your needs matched to something that's guaranteed, right? Like if you know you're always going to have this certain need for an amount of income for cash flow for the rest of your life, that could be matched to like a guaranteed product. And like we're saying here, the like government benefits, everyone's probably going to get them. Like there's certain stipulations to get them. You got to be in Canada for like 40 years and everything else for CPP and OAS. But like at least you have something coming in. So that's one way to cover some of those needs. And I think I've even read studies from BlackRock saying that retirees that do have guaranteed income, they tend to spend more on average than folks that don't. So that's exciting to me because that's the whole idea of our lives in general and our nest eggs in general. Like, what's the point of like amassing these portfolios if we're just going to put them on the shelf and watch them like sit there and leave the money to maybe somebody that we don't even want to leave money to or not that much, right? So kind of all pointless versus the idea is to spend it down. That's why we have guardrails to help you do that. Guaranteed income also is part of the equation to help you do that. Because if you have a certain degree of guaranteed income coming in, 
maybe from government benefits, maybe from annuities, maybe from defined benefit pensions, if you're lucky enough to have one, at least you have some of that risk mitigated. So you feel a little more confident to spend. And stats have shown the same thing that retirees that do have that guaranteed income, they're going to spend more. So that's one reason why I like it. And the how much conversation is a tricky one. I think it depends on everyone's like personal balance sheet of like what you're trying to cover and your needs and your wants. I think that's an interesting angle to take in, in conversation, but I think worth the talk for sure with your planner. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, if you could make it perfect, it would ideally line up with all your needs, those expenses that are coming in every month, no matter what. And I'd say that's more important to lower the income bracket because there's a lot less flexibility there, less important the you know, the higher the assets, like you're talking about the $12 million portfolio, you know, CPP and OAS probably don't really matter. In fact, they might've been better off to just take dividends out of their company. They probably have a company and not even contribute to CPP and keep that money for their kids. But the flip side of that is I really like what you said about spending more money because I'm thinking about a lot of my well-off clients. I try to get them to spend more money and they don't want to spend it because they have that mindset of saving their whole life. And it's such a like a paradigm shift to get people to actually spend their money once they've accumulated these large pools of money. But the money that they are spending is pensions if they have it, the CPP, the OAS, when they have it, generally they have it, the RIF minimums, like that's all I can get them to spend. So when that money is coming out to some of these clients, even though they're still not spending it, or at least they're giving it to their grandkids or their kids and like watching them enjoy it, or maybe doing a family trip or things like that. But you're right, if they didn't have any of those like sources where they were forced to take that income, I don't even think they'd spend that. Yeah, there's something about that contractual income that comes in that like, it's like a license to spend. It's like you're supposed to spend that. So they spend it, right? Maybe there's a case to be made of like, why don't you contractually guarantee more of your income? Maybe somebody who has more money, a larger portfolio, maybe you lock in some of your spending. Like you want to do a big trip every year, spend $20,000 and go to Italy and stay in the nicest resorts or whatever for a month. And you want to spend 28000 a year doing that. Well, you could potentially lock in your spending to do that if you had a guaranteed 20 coming in on top of government benefits, maybe through annuity or something. So there's different ideas out there, but all worth having a conversation again with your planner to really nail that down. Yeah, that's actually an interesting concept you just mentioned. We just did that with a client we recently onboarded. We actually took $200,000 and we just put it in ladder GICs because their plan is they want to spend 20 grand a year on travel over the next 10 years. So that was a goal that was really important to them. We wanted to make sure that they weren't losing sleep at night if markets were down thinking they're not going to get it, even though we have the guardrail set up for all their regular spending of the rest of retirement. So we just set that aside so they know that every year it's going to be rolling over. They take 20 grand and they're making a little bit of money on it, especially since we get a bit of interest on GICs now anyway. Totally. I bet you that's a happy retiree right there. I bet you their happiness meter is like through the roof. They're comfortable, comfortably able to travel every year, not worrying about what's happening. And it doesn't matter. That's pretty cool that they've been able to make that decision and secure that for themselves. Yeah, it's actually worked out really well. They're, they're really happy about it. So they're happy. I'm happy. Yeah, I've said this before, but the opposite of that has got to be the worst is every year deciding if you're going on vacation or, not, or where you're vacationing or not based on what the markets did or not that year. And always having to guess essentially guess markets did this. So I guess I should do that <laughs> or not do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's not as ideal. No, because we're earning an income. Like we know we have like this fairly steady income. So I know my lifestyle based on my income to some degree, right? It's like when you retire, it's like, oh, like my income is going to be like totally fluctuating. It's I haven't lived my whole life like that. It's a hard pill to swallow to say like my life's going to be up and down, left and right all over the place. One month I'm doing this, next month I'm doing that. It's like, I don't live like that. People don't live like that. You had your whole life earning a pretty steady paycheck. I mean, yeah, sure, it's increased bonuses and and things over the years, but like you had a little more foresight to determine your lifestyle in relation to your income. And I don't know, some a lot of retirees are just spending, like you said, Joe, the minimums or their government benefits and and like that's what they know. And then they end up having like this underutilized lifestyle because everything else is up and down. They don't know how to even tackle that world. So hopefully we're putting some of the pieces together for our listeners today both Joe, your listeners and our listeners and helping them to make some more educated decisions and just really live more fulfilled retirements, I'd say overall. That's why we're doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And I might I just jump back to the guardrails there for a minute because you mentioned, and I don't want people to think, oh, if I do guardrails, then every year I'm going to have to readjust what my travel is. So like the guardrails are very consistent. Like they're designed to not be making big changes year over year over year. But there's those kind of safety valves in place where we know we need to, as I said earlier, kind of tighten our belt or we can spend more money. But I think if you look through the kind of the papers on the guardrails, like you're looking at three to five adjustments throughout a 30-year retirement, right? It's not like every year you're making these adjustments. Yeah, They're fairly infrequent. And also we're talking about like a 10% adjustment. So if you're taking $10,000 a month out of the portfolio, 
and you hit the lower guardrail where you're adjusting down to $9,000 a month. So it's not like you're cutting your income in half by any means. And that's also excluding your guaranteed income sources that we already talked about, which are still going up with inflation every year in most cases. Really good point. Totally. Is there any closing thoughts at all? (laughs) Riley, Joe? The only other thing I would add, which we've been saying this whole time is there's planning, we call level one, but there's another level beyond that. So if you're doing no planning, good for you for listening to this. Now, you know, kind of some steps you can start taking. If you're doing planning, if you're working with somebody, now you have a kind of armed with some questions to make sure you're getting the most out of that relationship. And the whole point, and you guys, I think it's probably a similar point, but for me doing these podcasts and anything else I'm doing from an education standpoint is just educating consumers so that they feel empowered to get the advice they need. And the reason I say that is I can count how many people I've had come to me to say, I didn't get advice before because I was scared I would be judged or embarrassed by how little I know. So they just kind of never get advice because they don't want anybody judging them. So people, if you're listening to this, I mean, this is great because you're giving yourself that knowledge, which knowledge is power. And it just at least puts you in the position to know what questions to ask and get the right advice for yourself. Beautiful. Yeah. So Joe, it was great to chat with you today. We really appreciate the time together. Financial planners here in this virtual room discussing retirement income. It's been fun. I think we should have some more conversations in the future. Perhaps there's collaboration to be had. You never know. So Joe, thanks again for the time today. And if you do want to get a hold of any of the three of us or me and Riley, you can definitely send us an email. So you can reach me at cmiller at investordna.ca or Riley at Anderson at investordna.ca. And we can definitely put you in touch with some good resources and help you with your retirement income planning journey. Thanks again, Joe, and have a great day. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on this episode number 37 of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you want to find out more about working with our firm, you can visit www.matthewsandassociates.ca. And by the time you're listening to this, we may have a new website just for the podcast and all the education that we're doing. Retirement Planning Simplified is the brand. The actual website is out. We'll include the link in the show notes. Looking forward to checking in with everybody on the next episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. Have a great day, everyone. Investment services are provided through Matthews & Associates Investments of Aligned Capital Partners Incorporated and approved trade name of Aligned Capital Partners Inc. ACPI. Only investment-related products and services are offered through ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI and covered by the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Tax planning, financial planning, and insurance services are provided through Matthews & Associates. Matthews & Associates is an independent company separate and distinct from ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI. Matthews & Associates are not licensed tax professionals, and you should consult with your tax advisor before acting on any recommendations. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. If you'd like to see how prepared you are for retirement, we've created a free retirement readiness calculator to help you out. Go to matthewsandassociates.ca forward slash ready to input your retirement information and receive instant feedback to help you evaluate your current retirement readiness. Be sure to tune back in for the next episode. And until then, we're here to help you simplify and succeed in your retirement planning.